Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Sada Abe, victim and killer of Kichizo Ishida. Welcome, listeners. Today is your Halloween special episode, and this time I'm taking a deep dive into the story of Sada Abe, a troubled woman from an early age, a murderer, and a cultural figure. And in Japan, her impact on the Japanese culture, particularly Japanese sexuality, as I go through the intricacies of this particular case. This episode is explicit in nature, containing adult themes discussing concepts of sexual abuse, body mutilation, and more. Not for little ears, mates, or those who have triggers in this space. Now, the way I'm breaking Sada Abe's story down is as follows. I'm tackling where did this all take place, when did it take place, and why is it important, Sada Abe's childhood, the triggers that drove Sada Abe down this path, her life during her teens to adulthood, the murder of Kichizo Ishida and her motivations for the murder, her trial and the fallout after the murder, and the treatment of Sada Abe over the years to come, including pop culture relevance. This is part one of a two-parter. Because there's so much to cover. So, who is Sada Abe? Born on May 28th, 1905, Sada Abe, which I'll refer to here onwards as Sada, was born to a family of eight children, her father being Shigeyoshi and her mother, Katsu Abe. They were upper middle class tatami mat makers in Tokyo's Kanda neighborhood. Tatami mats are a floor material in Japanese households made of straw, hemp, or cotton. Each region of Japan had different names, but seeing as they are in Tokyo, Edoma would be what they were called. And their family of eight would have needed a lot of resources and a lot of money to be supported. And just so you know, calculating for inflation and the average cost of a Edoma, each tatami mat would fetch roughly 3,000 to 4,000 US dollars in this day and age. I wanted to find out how a family in 1905 could sustain itself in that period, during the Russo Japanese War period, that is. And that's how. Tatami mat power, mates. Of the eight children that Shigeyoshi and Katsu Abe had in their family, only four survived brother Shintaro Abe, sister Toku Abe, and second sister Teruko Abe. As far as their family goes regarding a reputation, the Abe family was seen as honest, upright, without any moral or social blemish, or any obvious conspicuous vice, aka drugs, alcohol, and gambling. In saying that, one person that the police had interviewed stated that the father of the family was self centered and had a taste for extravagance. I mean, everyone has their detractors, right? But I get a feeling that this guy was just jealous of Shigeyoshi. Especially since he inherited the family business, having been adopted as a child into a well to do family. So I wasn't surprised to find that not everything was positive about the Abe family. And the only singular statement being negative? Eh, definitely nothing too serious. Nothing that would allude to Sada doing what she did. As a child, Sada was really well looked after. Being the youngest child in the family, she was sort of spoilt, doted on, and basically got what she wanted. Being a youngest child myself, I can attest to that privilege. Oh, how many times I've broken my siblings' things. 
whilst my mum or dad just whisked me away from the impending bonk on the head coming my way. Now, as Sada grew up, her family wanted her to train in the skills of art and culture. At the time, this consisted of learning to sing and playing the shamisen, which is a Japanese three-string flute with a square body. Here's what it sounds like. You might have heard it before. Now, the instrument itself plays a major role in Japanese theater. Kabuki and bunraku, which are two of the major puppet plays, using shadows and lights to portray a story. But they were first used by street musicians and geishas, and sadly, back then, considered a low-class instrument, despite their beautiful melodies. These skills were later to be used by Sada to break into her dream occupation. Well, so she thought which was working with the geishas later in her life. Fast forward to 1915, which is where all the trouble really started. Wearing makeup, practicing her shamisen, and singing to her family, Sada, being 10 years old at the time, was exposed to talks about the act of sex from her aunts and uncles. Simply spending time with them and being around them during meetings and playing for them gave her that exposure. Then, at the age of 15, Sada's family's personal troubles started impacting her directly. Her sister, Teruko, was considered a Kyo-Akuhan, an adulterer, whilst her brother Shintaro was a Redinaiza, a womanizer. Their behavior created disruption within the family, aggressive arguments, and discussions about how both the siblings' day-to-day behavior was taking its toll on the family, and specifically, Abe's family, Menboku, Translated to the family's face, what this means really is the reputation of the family and how it was suffering, negatively impacted by the way the community they lived in perceived the Abe family, bringing into question their integrity and besmirched by the actions of Teruko and Shintaro. The arguments were increasing and reaching a fever pitch, where Sara was told by her mother to leave the house, providing her some money to spend as she sees fit, and they were well off. So Katsu provided Sada a sizable amount of cash to work with. This singular moment would be what I feel in my opinion sent Sada on a train wreck disaster later in life. And totally unbeknownst to Katsu, there's no way her mother would have known this would happen. During that turbulent time, where her family is busy arguing and screaming at each other, Sada wandered the streets, finding a group of teenagers to hang out with, around where she lived. As time went on, she would skip school, hang out with her friends, and work on attaining the skills of her dream job, which was to be a geisha, so singing and practicing the shamisen. Sada would also go to the izakaya, a bar where people can drink and socialize with other boys and girls from the street, often with large sums of money given to her by her parents, all the while though spending time away from home and out of sight of her family. Whilst hanging out with her friends, One member of her group cornered her and isolated her and raped her. She was 15 years of age at the time and pivotally changed Sada's life. There are reports of how her mother and father found out with evidence of the event based on the trauma and bleeding of Sada's genitals of which had been documented to have bled for two days. Her mother and father were both supportive however with her mother Katsu running out to stick the monster that did this to her, and unfortunately being unable to track the culprit, never really truly seeing closure. 
This combination of abuse and trauma, whilst also never finding the person that did this to her, or not willing to after that point, Zara's view on sexuality, sex, and the concept of chastity became warped. Articles that express her thoughts in regarding chastity at her age beginning to deteriorate. A sort of throwaway kind of attitude developed regarding sex and the piety in honoring oneself, in which, during the 1920s, was definitely a culturally sealed and approved perspective. Thinking that, because she was no longer a virgin, and that no would-be husband would ever have her as his wife after this event, that she might as well go around and enjoy herself without a care or worry. Meanwhile, Sada's sister was sent to the brothel to teach her a lesson about promiscuity, which uh, she was probably pulled back out of because I'm not sure what lesson that would teach. Her father then putting her in front, line and center for seeking a suitable husband. Sada, though, became more and more unruly and uncontrollable, from a parent-to-daughter relationship perspective, that is. At the age of 17, her family sold Sada to a geisha house. It was bittersweet. Sada felt her father did this to punish her and rein her in. Despite Toku, Sada's older sister, testifying that she wanted to be a geisha. I think Sada wanted to become a geisha on her own terms, without the requirement of intervention of her family, and on her own merit, rather than a business deal that she had no control over. So... Count one for a horrible life event. Rape at the age of 15, no rapist found. The family is already in disarray with their own issues of sexual promiscuity. And there's all around turmoil within the family, in which Sada is completely ignored. These core events fundamentally changed the way that Sada perceived not only the world around her and those that she loved, but what love meant, how she loved, and what terrors lurked in the world around her. So now, she worked with the geisha as a trainee or intern. In 1922, Sada was 17 at the time. She was forcibly sold into the institution that was the geisha, a geisha house in Yokohama, hoping to use all these skills that she developed in the past to help her in that trade. There was an issue though. The training under the geisha was much, much more controlled, restrictive and specific, meaning that she had to abide by specific rules and operate in a certain way. To be a geisha in those days, it would take six years from beginning to end straight. That's equivalent to being a doctor or a vet nurse. And I could do a whole episode just on geisha, easily. But for those who don't know who or what geishas are, they were, since the very first geisha recorded in 1730, who was a male, to modern day, of which are very different kinds of geisha, about a thousand now, specialty artists, entertainers, and social arbiters, often seen as well as counsellors, and being a geisha was and is extremely difficult, a social tightrope of negotiation, discussion, and artisan of fine art and knowledge. You really had to know your stuff, and be able to converse with all walks of life, and be able to converse with all kinds of business people, a sort of entertainment agent. And there is a misconception that geishas are tied to the sex trade, this is not the case, but there is a ritual that women go through and you can pay through the geisha, and they can refuse, called the mitsuage, which would be the only sex act that the geisha could perform, and refers to the coming-of-age practice for a woman transitioning into adulthood. In Sada's case, reports don't stipulate specifically why she was relegated to sex duties. 
other than Sada ending up as being a low-ranked geisha. The more I research on geisha though, the more I believe that Sada was sent to a less than reputable geisha house. Because geisha geisha that act in a sex trade predominantly would besmirch the geisha reputation, so I have an inkling that her father may have been tricked somewhat. Alternatively, she could have been punished for being so unruly while staying in the geisha house. But I digress. Sada spent five years with the geisha, where eventually she would contract the dreaded STD, syphilis. The one that starts off as painful sores in the genital area that spread further around the body, down nerve endings, and eventually into the brain, driving people mad. Sada knew this would be a death kneel, and seeing as it was 1927, 23 years away from benzathione penicillin, the cure for syphilis, Sada would need to undergo regular checkups and treatment, with the technology that they had. On the fifth year with the geisha, Sada left the geisha house to pursue a more lucrative occupation, legalized prostitution. Now working in Osaka, the Tobita brothel district was where Sada worked and lived. Here's an interesting fact about the Tobita Shinichi district. That district contained 2,000 prostitutes and 100 brothels, was completely missed by the World War II bombing, but was closed down by the Prostitution Prevention Law on the 1st of April 1958. Closed, in fact, for one day. Where all the brothels re-registered as restaurants, citing that sexual contact between the waitress and the client is viewed as a private affair between each other under Osaka's liberal interpretation with the law. So Sada worked within this district, but soon earned herself the reputation as not only a troublemaker, but also as a thief, stealing money from clients whilst also trying to evade the brothel district when they came collecting the money from her or from either the thefts she conducted or money she owed. It took Sada two years to leave the legalized prostitution system and sought for a standard job, finding a new role as a waitress in a restaurant, only to leave thereafter due to lower-than-expected wages. At this point, prostitution was what Sada knew, and she returned to that space, but this time as an unlicensed prostitute, which meant she wasn't under the protection of a larger prostitution body, and that posed significant financial and physical risks, but risks that Sada would take. Alongside this, there were also unlicensed brothels that she managed to work in, that she would stay to work in till 1932, making Sada 27 at the time. As Sada would age, she set her sights on becoming a brothel owner, becoming a mistress. A tough time to move up in that world, seeing as her mother died in 1933, a year after, and her father shortly after that in 1934. So, quick recap on having your life set up to fail. 1. Sexual abuse and trauma at the age of 15. 2. Syphilis around the age of 17 to 23. 3. Working as a prostitute and dealing with clientele in that space for around 5 years. And 4. Losing your parents close to each other and having a tenuous relationship before they pass. Now, I was thinking, well, what's going to happen next? That same year of 1934, Sada is arrested, yet released by the police due to a well-connected friend of a brothel owner, Kinosuke Kasahara. This man then made Sada his mistress. He was already married, and Sada would challenge him to leave his wife, whilst also asking that she be given permission to take another lover. He refused her on both accounts. She left him, furious. And this is where the focus on sex 
and the act of sex in this story takes a front seat. So put on your helmets, mates, because it's going to be a wild ride. When Kinosuke was asked about his relationship with her, he said she was really strong, a really powerful one. Even though I'm pretty jaded, she was enough to astound me. She wasn't satisfied unless we did it two, three, or four times a night. To her, it was unacceptable unless I had my hand on her private parts all night long. At first, it was great, but after a couple of weeks, I got a little exhausted. But then Kinosuke followed up promptly with, She is a slut and a whore. And as what she had done makes clear, she is a woman whom men should fear. Sara's response to this comment was equally acidic. He didn't love me and treated me like an animal. He was the kind of scum who would then plead with me when I said that we should break up. So this left Sara in a position as to where she would source her funds and get a new job. Enter Goro Omiya, who would be Sara's confidant and financial supporter. Sada would become his mistress. Goro was a professor and banker who one day hoped to be part of the Diet of Japan, or rather, Japan's House of Representatives called National Diet, a very prestigious group of people. The actions that Sada would take with Kijiso Ishida would forever affect Goro, and Sada knew this as seen later by her actions towards Goro. The National Diet was Goro's dream role because it placed him closer to influencing Japan at a much greater level, and would solidify his position politically within Japan for any future ventures he would take. But this dream was on the path to being shattered, and Goro had no idea, or the reason as to why. At this point, Sara moved to Tokyo, with Goro supporting her in her endeavors completely, giving her the money to stay in the resorts in Tokyo, providing her access to a myriad of hot springs that would alleviate her condition of syphilis during the year of 1936. So now Sada is 31 years of age. At this point is where she met her lover, her soulmate, and her victim. The reason why I titled this episode Victim and Killer of Kichizo Ishida was not that Kichizo Ishida is completely responsible for Sada's tangy into murder, but if this went the way that I'm going to explain it, Based on Sada's testimony, I can't help feel that Sada was the loaded gun, and Kichizo was the trigger that fired it. At this point, Sada is currently in Tokyo working as an apprentice at Yoshidaya in the Nakano neighborhood, run by Kichizo, who was 42. A businessman that worked his way up through the ranks over the years, starting as an eel apprentice himself, to only then open his own business in 1920, when Sada was roughly 15, which was met with great success. As a character, Kichizo was known as a womanizer, whilst his wife ran the restaurant completely. And I just gotta say, the people in this particular case, is is everyone just out to jump everyone's beans? Goodness, wait till we get to the judge that presides over this case, yikes. Now, shortly after Sada had started at Yoshidaya, Kichizo made advances, enough advances to a point where Sada and Kichizo had sex in the restaurant, with geishas attending. It must have been really surreal for Sada, having known that geisha life a decade ago. The account goes that all the while during sex, the geishas played ballads and sang romantic songs. Sada and Kichizo's tryst led to an extremely passionate and romantic relationship. And I really mean that. 
They met again the same year on April the 27th, moving to a different tea house in Futako, Tamagawa. Drinking, having sex, again with the geishas playing in the background and maids supplying them with sake. Now, when I mean extremely passionate, I mean this was a sex marathon. Perhaps a sex-a-thon of sorts, where Sada and Kichizo made love and indulged themselves for 11 days. Sada remarked about Kichizo that it is hard to say exactly what was so good about Ishida, but it was impossible to say anything bad about his looks, his attitude, his skill as a lover, the way he expressed his feelings. I had never met such a sexy man. So this is such an unexpected response, not only because of the time that these feelings were expressed, but how they were expressed and the openness that Sada had towards expressing her own feelings. This is an indicator and the start of why Sada became an icon or representative to the Japanese regarding sexual freedoms, despite what she did to Kichizo. I always found it amazing that from these incidents, no matter how severe or brutal or downright disgusting the situation is, people find a way to gleam a truth from it or repurpose the destruction in a way that spawned new ideas. Now, this is not always the case, but in this particular scenario with Sada, we witness in Japanese culture a shift away from significantly repressed and bottled feelings into a more open and free perspective. Now, the means in this case do not justify the ends. Kijasu did not need to die to get this message across, and Sada never intended for this perspective to be birthed from her actions. That I'm certain. But I do find it impressive that the Japanese were able to form a movement or thought pattern around the silver lining of this case. And that was expression of feelings and the freedom to express those feelings. And speaking of expression, that moves me back onto their tryst, well, sex marathon. So once their sexathon was over, Sada returned home agitated, depressed, and longing for Kijiso, stating in her testimony that she knew love only then for the first time. Thinking of Kichizo with another woman, her situation, and what options she had available, plus the desire to be back with her love, she began plotting the murder. But not for the reason you might think. Motivation is really key here in understanding why murders like this take place, and why murder happens at all. Taking into account now Sada's mental state, the experiences she's been put through over the past 20 years, and her finally finding someone that she cherishes both mind and body. Sada was above and beyond in love with Kijiso, and he had no idea how much in love she was with him. During this short time away from Kichizo, Sada went and saw a play that would provide her the idea of doing what she intended, but could not formulate initially into a plan. The play centers around a geisha that attacks her lover with a large knife, and identifying with these characters does the same thing to Kichizo. In May, she would reenact this play, scene for scene, buying a sushi knife and a kitchen knife with the intent to kill. Sada's statement was as follows, I pulled the kitchen knife out of my bag and threatened him as had been done in the play I had seen, saying, Kichi, you wore that kimono just to please one of your favorite customers. You bastard! I'll kill you for that! Ishida was startled and drew away a little, but he seemed delighted with it all. Kichizo thought it was a joke, laughed it off, and as she quoted, appeared delighted with her act. They then began to make love, 
with Sada pulling the knife at one point close to the base of Kichizo's penis. And she stated that she would make sure that he never messes around with another woman again. Again, Kichizo laughed and then once more returned to sex over two days and nights straight. But that was when everything turned for the worse. Sada began choking Kichizo as part of a sexual gratification act, sexual asphyxiation, where it is classified as breath play, a sense of danger, almost dying, heightened the experience during sexual intercourse. And this is without saying, and this is without saying, I'm not condoning this in any way, but I want to be obvious here. And it was this act that really freaked me out the more I researched this case. Turns out that after Sada had strangled Kichizo, his face didn't return to normal. She had gone too hard, and the nerves and blood vessels had ruptured in his neck, causing permanent nerve and tissue damage. Kichizo told her, You'll put the cord around my neck and squeeze it again while I'm sleeping, won't you? If you start to strangle me, don't stop, because it is so painful afterward. Which I feel Sada thought this was his desire to die, commenting that she had wondered if he wanted to kill him, or that it was just one of his jokes. Her mental state during this point makes this kind of commentary difficult to follow, but nonetheless this was her account. It was at this point that Sada ran to the chemist to pick up either painkillers or sleeping pills, perhaps a bit of both, crushing 30 of them up, and fed them to him over a period of time. This particular part wasn't in all the reports, and I had to dig through some Japanese news articles to identify exactly what they were referring to. Some reports completely omitted this piece of information, and I'm not sure why. The motivation though of purchasing 30 pills of varying medicine from the chemist to help Kujiso when she was going to strangle him at 2am just didn't add up. They also comment on Sada talking to the chemist and asking for their help, and how much rest he should have based on his injuries. I have a feeling though that there were some translation issues there. But the fact that she gave him the pills and ground them up sounds to me that she was either doing this to reduce his pain, knowing that he was going to die, and that her strangulation at a later point would mean he would no longer suffer. It's a difficult one to assess. Now, as the night drew on, roughly 2am, she strangled Kichizo again, and this time, he did not wake up. Stating once that act was done, at the time it was as if the heavy burden on my shoulders had all been taken off, and I was so happy. And by burden she meant the everlasting love of Kichizo. But I will get to that. And this is part one of Sada Abe's story, with part two being released next week. And yes, it does actually get more freaky, and it involves Kichizo's penis and a blade, and much more. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed part one of Sada Abe, victim and murderer of Kishizo Ishida. In part two, I'll continue from what Sada did next, and it really is unthinkable and really crazy. The reasoning and thought process behind why she did this and what she did is really unfathomable to me. I'll be covering the court case, motive, and the iconic representation of Sada Abe to the Japanese and the rest of the world, including her impact on Australia. Western Australia, specifically where I live, actually. This research always brings in new and crazy things. 
Mates, if you like this episode and want to support me, you can do this for free by leaving an iTunes review or comment on the episode. If you think this fella is a top bloke, I'ma send some dollar dues your way, mate, then you can do that via Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash sfgt. Now, I want to thank my amazing Patreon supporters who donate the show to help me grow and do bigger and better episodes. Marvelous and magnanimous Maya. Maya, you are a superstar. Strapping this podcast to a rocket and sending it into space with an S+. Thank you, Maya, for your brilliant support. Thanks to you, mate. I'm able to flex my old-time repair metal and also finally get hold of an update on my software that allows me to stream my audio even better through my existing mic setup. So thank you immensely, Maya. Also, I'm moving on to the adventures of Philip Marlowe with a voracious appetite and have been using the new RX9 software to polish it up. Thank you so much, Maya. You are a superstar. My white tea warlord, Leza King Abinator, Dudio, thanks to your support, I'm able to actually keep my website up and running and also release some press releases for the podcast, which helps other people all around the world know that I exist. And the more people I reach, the more stories that I can tell and the more fun that we all can have. So thank you so much, mate, for being a supporter of all things that are fun. Cheers, Leza. And my second white tea warlord, because I'm lucky to have two, Paige, Queen of the Collectors. Paige, thank you, Miss Amazing, for your support. I've been working hard to reach out to some freelancers to work on the website and also focus on dealing with paying for subscription costs regarding SEO. Thanks to your brilliant support, I can actually run the website and not have to stress about how to fund that site and keep it going. You are a legend, mate, and I'm lucky to have your support. Cheers, Paige. And my astounding, enigmatic Earl Grey enforcers, I'm lucky to have Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, and Alia Arcane. Thank you all, you legends. Have a wonderful weekend, and I'm going to continue this next week for part two of the Sada Abe story. As always, folks, till next week. Me.